Uh, hello and welcome to Small Screen Science, the podcast where we look at the science behind some of our favourite TV programmes. I'm Karen. And I'm Emma. And this week's episode is called Six Pack Science because we're going to be looking at Love Island and why we like reality TV and the science behind why we find people attractive. So have you watched any of this season's Love Island? Right. Well, you've totally mugged me off with this one <laughs> because I swore I was not going to watch Love Island again. Yeah. I, I've watched a couple of seasons. And I didn't watch uh, Summer 2019. Okay. And then we started looking at this episode <laughs> Just in time <laughs> for the new winter season. So, you know, ITV's really putting all its eggs in the Love Island basket. Mm. You know, we'll churn out two seasons. Anyway, so I thought, okay, well, I'll watch one or two just so that I've got some, you know, relevant knowledge. Um, and I'm hooked and I've watched every single episode. And Because <laughs> <laughs> we'd only agreed to watch the first episode, hadn't we, initially, just to get an idea of what this yeah. season was about. <laughs> you know, you, you can generally get a feel for like the main characters from, from day one. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll watch the first week, mm-hmm. see the lay of the land, see what kind of characters are emerging, and just refresh my Love Island brain. No, nope, totally suck it in. Nice. I will be watching the entire season. <laughs> and who's your favourite character so far? Oh, it's a tough one. The thing is, this season, there isn't like one standout, hilarious person. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, I feel like, or at least in some of the scenes I have watched, there's always been like one really funny person or like a real duo that are quite hilarious together and like really bring some character. Um, but there isn't really that. In this. Everyone just seems quite nice and quite like non-aggressive and quite normal. So you are attracted to someone who's quite amusing then, that might suggest. Oh, uh, yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, humour is a big thing. And a lot of people say that. And a lot of people that start Love Island say, oh, yeah, I just want a guy that can make me laugh. No, no they don't. Not so They much. want someone with a six-pack and tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> this is the first time you've watched any like Love Island, isn't it? Yeah, I'm definitely outside the demographic, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a little bit old for Love Island, but... <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I did watch the first episode, yeah, as a bit of research. And I have to say, my initial reaction was the ladies came on first and mm. they did look lovely, I have to say. Lovely. Very, very lovely, yes. yes. Very that's, lovely. that's code word for very sexy. Fit. <laughs> yes, fit. Yeah, they did look lovely. Um, and they seemed to be engaging in that initial kind of conversations with each other. But all that was going through my head was the radio mic straps and, you know, what about chafing? What about tan lines? Yes, that's true. And I was just thinking that just having that on all the time. You're right, because they are mic'd up 24-7. Yeah. I suppose you've got to, you know, shift positions every day, maybe keep moving where the pack's sat. But when you're wearing so little clothing, there's only so many places the pack can be sat, I suppose. Yeah, and the microphone, I noticed for a lot of them, the microphone was slap bang in the middle of the bust Oh, true. Exactly the wrong place when you want a nice tan line down there for your posh frocks. That's you not going to work, is it? I mean, you know, there's some debate about whether the tans that they arrived with were real in the first place. But um, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I suppose it's easier for the guys because they can just put it in their in their shorts pockets. Yeah, and I find the initial start you know where they're they're all lined up and they're choosing each other that Mm. kind of ritual humiliation of the boys oh it is I really felt for them in that and and I was just sitting there thinking imagine what that must be like for those guys who are clearly fit really good looking great personalities well used to be well some of them (laughs) (laughs) they've not been chosen for their personalities (laughs) let's be honest this is true this is true but they're used to being out there in the world and not necessarily having people throwing themselves at them but you know people attracted to them generally in a bar you could imagine them all doing very well yeah but then suddenly they're in front of these gorgeous women Mm. who are just mugging them off 
Oh, so you've got the lingo. Yes. The lingo. <laughs> there we go. There we go, listeners. We do this every episode. You have to see how many Love Island catchphrases I can sneak into this one. But you've got you've got mugged off, all right? Yeah. Well done for someone who doesn't watch Love Island. This is true. But I do spend quite a bit of time around young teenagers. And I think I've probably picked it up from that, from my teaching career. So, yeah. Yeah, I can well imagine. Um, I have to say, though, I was very, I can see why that you got so addicted into the series mm. is because it's that kind of cliffhanger that they left at the end. The fact that they, yeah. that first episode, they brought the twins out. Ooh, and even funny. though I really didn't want to watch another episode, there was part of me thinking, what's going to happen next? But what happened to the twins? Exactly. And I could hear the EastEnders music in my head. It was that kind, <laughs> of, you know, that kind of cliffhanger at the end. So much so I had to go on the internet and find out what happened next. Oh, okay. So yeah. you, you did engage in it in some did, way yeah but, but without not, really committing it's not even so much the drama anymore it's just the people you get to know for me yeah. that's what I quite like um because I tend to watch it while I'm like getting my sandwiches ready for work the next day <laughs> like it's not something I sit down and consume and give all of my attention but having it ticking over and like just keeping up to date with what they're up to and the, watching these characters and their personalities develop we keep calling them characters but of course they're not they're real people well I know it's quite interesting because I noticed that at the beginning yes because yeah. it's kind of that soap opera style maybe of the of the program the way it does feel like a soap opera like you're not watching something that's quite real yeah well we'll we'll come on to that later the definition of reality tv but i'm i'm not in general a big reality tv watcher i have to admit um well i was i'm kind of from that generation where when big brother came out in the early 2000s i saw the first series of that and when pop idol came out and it was something really really different and Mm. i did watch the whole of the first series of big brother well that was heralded like the biggest social experiment wasn't it yeah and it really was and it was interesting watching people and how they reacted in a small tight community like Mm. that um and and kind of trapped in that situation and how you know how they reacted to each other and the conversations they were having in the big chair with you almost as the audience watching yeah it was really interesting idea so love island has you know evolved from that initial start of that style of reality tv hasn't it yeah now we're really focusing on relationships yeah and you can really see that that love island is a logical progression from that yeah absolutely so karen yes what's your type on paper oh that's an interesting question i'm getting my love island hat on yeah um, you and me sat around the pool yeah nothing else to do because they won't really have books or anything <laughs> <laughs> i would go for the young denzel washington oh yeah okay oh, in uh it was in one of the shakespeare films and he with emma thompson and oh my goodness yes oh very nice very nice indeed very very nice yes he's Is lovely <laughs> he's lovely he? he's lovely. very nice how about you I think uh, Ryan Reynolds has always been top of my he's lovely list. Ah, do you know what? I agree with you there. But again, it's that humour. That's true. I mean, he's gorgeous. Yeah. But he is hilarious. Absolutely. Definitely. Ah, Yeah, I'd get to know him better. Mm. And you'd crack on with Denzel Washington, (laughs) would you? I certainly would. Very funny. (laughs) don't know what my husband would say, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) So why, why do we find these people so attractive? That's a big question, isn't it? This is a question that people have been trying to answer for so long. There is so much research on why you know why we find certain people attractive and i've got to just preface this a little bit with saying that most of this research that has been done has looked at heteronormative relationships that's true so we're not deliberately only looking at hetero relationships it's just because that's the research that we've got to draw on for this section yeah certainly in terms of the the psychology and the sociology although the physiology would be exactly the same no matter what type of relationship Mm. that you're in Mm. so i've been doing a bit of grafting here 
Um, <laughs> just watch that one. I did, yes. I'm wondering how many you're going to spot because you haven't watched uh, quite so many Yeah, episodes. not being a Love Island regular, this I might one miss for a me few. and the listeners. <laughs> so essentially, when it comes to physical attraction and, and why we, you know, see someone step onto the tube in the morning and we're like, cool, yeah, he's mm. a bit of me. Generally, that kind of stems from the olden days. It's an, like an evolutionary thing. You're looking for a partner who is healthy and able to provide for both you and your child. Um, so that's particularly from a woman's perspective. You're, we tend to look for men who display physical characteristics of health. So symmetry is a really big one. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So symmetry occurs most often in nature and asymmetry in nature actually doesn't tend to survive, whether you're talking about you know, genetics or flowers or anything asymmetry is very uncommon in nature oh i didn't realize that which is interesting Mm. so by looking at a person's face or body and seeing that they're perfectly symmetrical it's this very visual subtle cue of hey look i'm healthy i've got really good genes i'll pass these genes on to your offspring and i also have no clear sign of like disease or a problem to pass on to your child yeah so by selecting a mate that is going to give your children good genes you're giving them and your own then future genes the best chance of survival Oh, I see. Which is not something that's ever crossed my mind in a bar. No, <laughs> no, I'm not. I was going to say, if I look at Denzel Washington and think he's lovely, I'm not thinking about children. Mm, <laughs> so symmetrical. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and of course, the cliche is that men tend to go for younger women. Mm. And there's some science behind this. Oh, I see. It's all about looking for reproductive success. So obviously women kind of hit their reproductive peak uh, between kind of 16 and 24, mm-hmm. which is why even older men are often not really fancying so much people their own age. They're, they'll always be attracted to the younger younger girls. It doesn't really matter what age a guy gets to, they can still procreate. But for, for women, we have a much smaller window of oh, when we're right, able yeah, to yeah. successfully or less riskily bring a child into the world right so it's not a midlife crisis no well (laughs) well you know that's probably got something we can debate around (laughs) and on the topic of physical attraction did you know that people have found actual ratios within which our bodies are supposed to fit to be attractive Oh, bit maths. Let's, yeah. bring, let's bring the maths into it. We favorite. know you love maths. Mm. <laughs> so for women, uh, men typically find attractive a waist-to-hip ratio of 0.7. Oh. And what's really interesting about this is it's not actually anything to do with your size and your weight. Mm. You can be large or skinny, that doesn't matter, but having this waist-to-hip ratio is what is deemed as attractive. So is this kind of like the uh, the classic hourglass kind yeah. of curve going out into the hip? But what's really interesting is this is possibly determined because of the type of estrogen and the amount of estrogen that women have in their bodies. It defines whereabouts fat is stored in their body. So okay. um, if you've got what is deemed in quotations uh, the right type and amount of estrogen, mm-hmm. it would typically lead to the buildup on the hips and less on the waist. Oh, I see. So it's, a, again, a very visual cue of like, hello, I'm ready to reproduce. And what's quite interesting about being going through the menopause is that you start women tend to start to put um, some of the fat onto the onto the kind of torso region, and oh, that yes. means that would affect the hip to waist ratio and maybe suggest that they weren't reproductively active. This is very true. Sending mm. men into the arms of the younger women. Yes. Ah, but it's okay. There is also a ratio for men. Oh, okay. We like a broad shoulders, us ladies. Mm-hmm. And generally, men with uh, a ratio of shoulders uh, that are 0.8 or to 1 of um, shoulders to hips. Right. So you're, so you're top heavy. Is, so a uh, triangle. Yeah, triangle a triangle. Shape. A triangle is the ideal one for, for women. And both of these ratios as well also relate to kind of physical cues of um, being less susceptible to things like cardiovascular disease. 
Oh, okay, yeah. So it's all it's all these things that we're not noticing at all, but biology is saying like, hey, I'd be a good choice for your future partner. So it's very much the subcon- yeah, subconscious, yeah. Mm. So um, given all of this information then, would you say that opposites attract? That's, that's one of the cliches, isn't it? Everyone yeah. always says, oh, you know, opposites attract. But a lot of the science says no. Oh. A lot of the science says that there's a lot of safety seen in familiarity. Like when it comes to things like your immune system, mm. you want someone apparently with a very different immune system because then you're likely to pass on the best chance for your children right. to have a really concrete immune system. Things like exposure and proximity to someone are actually way more important, they found. than um, So that's, that's why... You know, celebrities will often date after doing a film together because they've spent so much time together in such close proximity that that almost exceeds all of the other cues and you find someone so much more attractive. Yeah, yeah, getting to really get to know them. Mm. Mm. But of course, you know, environment and previous relationships and experiences too have have a really big role in who you find attractive. So it's not everything that we've just reeled off. But this podcast isn't going to be three hours long, is it? It's not going to be any longer than the dramatic pauses around the fire pit when someone's about to get dumped. So, <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> so there's there's plenty more on this, but we're not we're not going to go into it. So we know, you know, we know we fancy someone. Yeah. What happens next? What happens to our bodies when we fancy someone? Well, the physiology, there's quite a lot of physiology around, you know, when you're actually physically attracted to someone. So Mm. most of us know that our pupils will dilate when we find somebody attractive. Mm. And quite often they carry out studies where they they, um, show women uh, pictures of different types of men, for example. And what they'll measure to see if they're attracted to these men is the size of the pupil. Oh, really? When they're looking at the image, yeah. Um, And we know that we end up with sweaty palms and you get flushed cheeks, you often blush when you see somebody that you're really attracted to i go bright red yeah i'm terrible blusher as well which is always embarrassing um and you get these obviously these feelings of passion but you also get that kind of anxiety in the pit of your stomach when you find butterflies yes Mm. always when you find someone attractive and this is obviously down to hormones and chemicals that are released in the body and there's a whole list of different chemicals which which affect our bodies and how we react with people one of these chemicals is cortisol. Okay. And cortisol increases in the body when you're attracted to someone. Mm. And this is a stress hormone. And this helps the body cope with the crisis of falling in love with someone. So that anxiety <laughs> behind falling in love with someone, the fear of rejection and all of those kind of things that, yeah. that you're coming across. Um, the amount of serotonin inside the body decreases. All right. And that's what causes the obsessive compulsive behavior of that early part of the relationship. You know, when you just can't stop thinking about someone and you're absolutely obsessed with them all Mm. the time. So that's caused by uh, this decrease in serotonin. And then, of course, there's the dopamine. Oh, that's the good stuff. Yeah, we like a bit of dopamine. And this is the um, this is, gives a reaction in the body uh, similar to if you drink alcohol or you take cocaine. Mm. It's that kind of feel-good drug inside the body, that rush, that natural rush in the body. Um, and there's been um, some a really interesting experiment looking at fruit flies and looking Ooh. at how the, how rejected fruit flies react. So if you have, okay. um, so imagine you've got uh, you've got some lady fruit flies and some gentleman fruit flies, <laughs> and the ladies are either getting it together with the with the male fruit flies mm. or rejecting them. Um, and what you find is these rejected male fruit flies will drink four times as much alcohol <gasps> as the um, fruit flies who've managed to get it together with a lady. That's fruit fly. amazing. Um, and that means that they're both basically getting to the same level of high, but mm. through different means, one through sex and one through drinking alcohol. I mean, we've all been there. Yeah. Who, who doesn't drink alcohol when they get rejected? Exactly. <laughs> so, oh, that's, that's fascinating. Um, 
And one of the other things it does is it deactivates uh, neural pathways that are responsible for negative emotion. Oh. um, And also for um, kind of the social justice side. So it is true that you, um, you know, that love is blind. So basically you're, you know, it's because all of these negative emotions like fear are being shut down in the body when you fall in love with someone Ah. and attractive. So that's the physiology covered. Mm-hmm. Let's reel it back in and get back to Love Island and yeah. reality TV. Yes, absolutely. Um, so what actually is reality TV? So we spoke to Annette Hill, Professor of Media and Communication at Lund University in Sweden, author of several books and papers on reality TV to tell us a little bit more about what it actually is. It's the million dollar question. What is reality television? Um, and uh, I think it started out in the 80s as something very much related to um, on-scene, as-it-happens, sort of crime-related programming. Um, and uh, I think it morphed in the 1990s. What we meant by reality television suddenly becomes something a little bit more observational, documentary, a little bit more scripted um, sort of reality television coming through. And then by the time we had Big Brother in the early 2000s, it became more like this competitive reality um, and sort of uh, set up, you know, sort of things set up for a more kind of reality entertainment um, meaning. So now, I think when we say reality television, we mean reality entertainment. Well, that's something you've just touched on there, the whole um, being constructed for TV. I mean, how far can we really call it reality TV when there's all sorts of input from producers and creating narratives through editing and trying to create some kind of drama for the audience? I don't think anyone believes that reality television has reality in it. I think everyone believes it's a container for things that we see as a representation or a, a performance of reality. And, and I think that's from the production perspective and from the audience perspective. I think we all expect a sense of, of what we would typically call staging the real. How, how much in, um, in Love Island are we expecting people to be really there to find romance? And how much is it about the, the branding and performance of these particular um, identities and celebrities in the making in that kind of reality setting? Okay, so Annette said there that that we know reality TV isn't really real. Mm. We know it's curated. So if we know it's curated, we know it's not real, why do we still like watching it? Well, those studying reality TV believe that it can often be driven by two things. Now, the first is empathy. Uh, You know, it's it's kind of an extension of drama and you're really feeling for these characters. But the other is a sense of voyeurism and real kind of peeping Tom. You you kind of intrude on these people and their relationships and this sense of just watching these intimate things happening and where you otherwise wouldn't be privy to. Um, Some sociologists as well compare it to the audience watching gladiators fighting to the death inside the Roman Colosseum. Oh, so gladiators are like the OG reality TV. Now, now I have to admit, I have no idea what OG is. (laughs) You have to explain that one to me. This is one of the most ridiculous ones. So OG means original gangster. Right. Which means they're from the start. They're from the beginning. They're like your core, your best mates. Okay. They're the ones from the beginning. I see. Makes sense. You learn something new every day. Yeah. Um, But others argue that it's not so much like a a Roman Colosseum because there's part of us that wants to be part of the reality TV when we're watching it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, But, um, you know, you you can't imagine putting your friends or your family into the Roman Colosseum. But Mm. a lot of people can see themselves putting those people in reality TV or imagining yeah. their friends taking part in reality There's television. a lot of aspiration around being part of the villa, isn't it? Whereas, yeah, you're right. There's no way someone wakes up in the morning and goes, 
I hope I get selected to go in the Coliseum <laughs> back in Roman days. So anyway, we spoke to Dr. Brendan Rooney, Director of the Media and Entertainment Psychology Lab at UCD in Ireland, about how and why we actually like Love Island itself. Why do you think something like um, Love Island, for example, is so popular? Why that would be popular is because young people at a time in their life, uh, relationships and social interactions with maybe those that they're sexually attracted to, they're really important. And um, I suppose Love Island, it's, it's presenting young people with in-depth kind of superficially realistic or presented as realistic interactions between young between young good-looking aspirational people that they can think about and criticize or judge or discuss with their friends and all of that is ways for them to refine their thoughts and opinions predict their own behaviors and learn from to model what they might do how can they increase their chances of finding someone to be in a relationship with one thing i found i'm not really a reality tv person but i will admit to having watched love island and this wasn't because i would say that i chose to although obviously i did choose to um it was more because everybody in my office of all generations was watching it so you'd come in the next morning and you had to have watched it to know what everyone was talking about but it connected everyone who wouldn't necessarily talk together nor would we have a common source of gossip um, and, and Love Island and these, these relationships in this ridiculous situation were suddenly the thing that we could all gossip about and have an opinion on. Okay, what I would say to that is people can build their uh, social interactions and their identities. Um, they construct these things around their hobbies or the media they consume. Um, so when when you engage with these shows, when you're watching this stuff, they can become this way for you to share your opinions or to together I can I can get to know you by discussing someone else's behavior on TV mm. and and we can make alliances in the workplace or of course that boss that I really don't doesn't don't like, of course they would identify with that character that I also don't like. Um and so that's actually that's actually the same thing as modeling social interactions. It's just we're doing it as a group. We're doing it together. Um, we're modeling our we're trying out identities. We're trying to figure out other people's identities. And in a way, it's also a safe space because you're not talking about Mary in the office next door. You're talking about this character who's on TV. So we can together figure out where we stand on these issues by um, discussing them. So Brent talked about young people engaging with Love Island there. And mm. actually, of the three million people who engaged with the 2019 series, most of them were 16 to 34-year-old women. Ah. Now, that surprised me, actually, because I, really? I knew that... Well, I knew the demographic would be, you know, 16 to 34, which yeah. is that, that group of people that television's always trying to attract. Desperately trying to get, yeah. Um, and But I, I just had a feeling either it would be a 50-50 mix, or for some reason I felt that young men might be a little bit more attracted to the programme. I mean, I get that there's quite a lot of, like, boob on display. This is true. But, <laughs> but there's so much, so much of it's about you know, the, the relationships themselves and the social dynamics. I just don't think guys are that stereotypically that interested in like watching people gossip around a pool. Like I imagine if you were a guy watching it, you know, maybe your girlfriend's forced you to sit and watch it with you. You could find things that you might enjoy about the episodes. (laughs) (laughs) 
Anyway, so back on the topic of younger viewers, of course, especially when there are people aged 15, 16 watching it, mm. that can often be considered quite a vulnerable group sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that they may be trying to model themselves on these people, seeing them as role models, mm. yeah, definitely a vulnerable group. And so the media obviously laps up reality TV, but it does also often question whether it's right to be giving this content to young people and the impact that it might have on young people. So instead of you and I trying to answer that, we, of course, put that question to Bren. Indeed. If you, were to, if you had somebody that was coming up to you and saying, actually, this reality television is bad for people, they shouldn't be watching it, it has a negative impact on people um, in terms of their you know, perception of themselves and perception of other people, what would, you, what would you say to that? So as a psychologist, I'm kind of trained to resist those sorts of strong claims um, unless there's evidence. And so a lot of technology and media and entertainment for a long time when it's new has been said to be bad for us or resisted and I tend to treat those sorts of claims with scientific skepticism um, I wouldn't rule out the fact that over consuming things like reality TV can probably have negative effects on someone but it but in the right place in the right context in the right amounts it can also serve a really important function the the things that stories and films and other entertainment experiences do for us, like I said, they move our emotions, they capture our attention. And then, and then in many cases, they give us scenarios, social kind of events that we can consider what we would say in cognitive science as modeling. So we're like, we're running simulations based on these sorts of things to try and maybe practice what we would do in that situation or how we would think about it. So reality TV is offering us something to model, something to think about. Some, and, and I think for the most part, it's probably social interactions, relationships, love life, maybe even things like The Apprentice or Big Brother might help us with our careers if we're thinking how we could be competitive, how we might outsmart someone and, and kind of be part of a team versus be on our own. And reality TV can be really effective ways for us to think about those sorts of outcomes and scenarios in a safe space so that we can we don't actually have to practice it in our kind of real life where it could have detrimental kind of implications for us. The negative thing is if we consume so much of this potentially distorted, highly designed or contrived situations that they might feel like they're not models anymore, that they're not practice situations. In some ways, if it was extremely consumed, it could shift your perception of what's real, what's normal and what's acceptable. A healthy adult can maybe reflect on the fact that these are kind of contrived or, or, or fabricated experiences, but maybe sometimes younger people would be a bit more vulnerable to influence from them because they may have more limited experiences with the, with the outside non-media world. Um, I think that can be helped through either education um, references, maybe through formal education systems, but probably the most kind of normal or influential way is just through parent, family and friend interactions to just talk about these experiences, share them 
as a parent to watch these shows with your child and, and discuss the issues that come up. I think uh, maybe a parent's tendency is to try and shelter their child from those sorts of experiences, deprive them from watching reality TV. And on one hand, that can disadvantage them in a social situation where they don't know what all their friends are talking about. And on the other hand, it might disadvantage them because it, it shelters them from a potential learning experience. If you wanted your child to know how to be safe on the street, you don't lock them in a room away from the road. So what you could do is accompany them on the street, point out the things and discuss the things that you want them to be aware of. And I think exposure to media is the same. So Bren's take on actually using Love Island as an educational tool, I thought that was a really cool idea. I'd yeah, never absolutely. really, Yeah, I'd never looked at um, something like Love Island as anything other than entertainment. But, you know, you're a science teacher. Yep. How do you approach sex education and these things in schools? Well, of course, we teach the biological aspects mm. and that's what's on the on the curriculum. But we also cover things like relationships and the key questions that students of that age have. And they often find that their science teacher is the only person that they can ask those kind of questions to. Uh -huh. um, and quite often what uh, what science teachers will do and what I did in the classroom was I'd have a beaker at the front of the room and then all the students will be given a piece of paper during the lesson and they can scribble down any questions they might have. Mm. Um, and then those questions would go into the pot at the front. I would pull them out and answer as many as I thought were age appropriate for that group of students that was in front of me. Mm. Um, and you get all sorts of really strange questions coming out. And I think my favourite, which was from a, probably about 12 years ago now, now, um, so pre-smartphone, pre definitely, oh, days. Okay. Um, which is, um, is it okay to use a crisp packet as a condom? <gasps> oh. <laughs> it doesn't even bear thinking about, does oh, it? Oh, my God. Um, so what flavour crisps? Well, that, that's it. That's what we ended up talking about, you know. And people were thinking about... No, Oh, that's horrible. Everything like, about that just, just makes me squirm. That's horrible. Yeah, but genuinely, you know, if, if, at that age, you have lots of questions. And where now, you know, students might go on to, onto the internet to try and find answers to the questions. As a parent, would you really want them to be searching for those? Goodness knows what they'd find. On an open internet? I mean, I, I don't know, but... You know, that's that's the type of questioning that we did. And and we talked, you know, more recently, we're talking a little bit more, maybe touching on things like consent and peer pressure mm. and that type of thing. And what, you know, what age they're at. And in fact, a recent paper published January this year was is arguing for the fact that maybe Love Island should be used in an educational context. Mm. And they actually, um, you know, discussed with students about their reactions and, you know, all of the issues that were being raised. And they actually came to the conclusion that Love Island would be useful to use in the classroom ah. and might actually point teachers a little bit more towards that relationship education and not necessarily focusing entirely on the biology, which is a big criticism of, of sex education in schools. Because lots of kind of social science research has come out of reality TV and, and lots of it looks at, like you said, the relationships um, and things that are portrayed on Love Island, but actually it's the relationships and the way some of those have been conducted that of what Love Island is often criticised for, isn't it? And why we need to be having these discussions. Yeah, because um, if you take... The gaslighting, for example, I mean, mm. that's come up in a couple of seasons now. I mean, first came up in 2018 and Women's Aid then um, published, you know, a response to that. 
and then found that they had to do exactly the same thing again in 2019. Mm. Um, and that, that is an issue. But again, you know, it's something that you can discuss with, with students and mm. with your children, you know, if your parents about the inappropriateness of some of these behaviours. Mm. Um, but then Love Island has been criticised for, for a number of other things as well, including, you know, male, male dominance and the subordination of women, but also the subordination of men who who have different personality types to that kind of dominant male mm. personality, that toxic male personality. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in particular, I mean, obviously you didn't watch this season, but this was going back to 2018, I think, where the uh, the Dubit Society oh, was yes. formed. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, that obviously was season specific, but has kind of continued. Everyone jokes about the Dubit Society still. And it was, again, it was a real display of, I mean, at the time, I think the, the Islanders were just having a bit of fun. They would never have thought about maybe what it looked like from the outside, but it yeah. was a real display of celebrating this uh, hegemonic masculinity, which which does in fact celebrate, you know, dominant men in the sense of like, stereotypically manly men who have dominance over not only other men who have different forms of masculinity, but women as yeah. well. So this club was formed, um, for people or for men exclusively for men who were doing bits um and you were ranked as to how far you may have progressed with your partner sexually right. and you were celebrated for getting in and you were shunned or sh- not shunned but you were shamed or teased for not getting entry to this club right so if you so basically if you hadn't kind of got it on with one of the ladies yeah then you were you were shamed so this is where Dr. Alex comes in. Now, even if you haven't watched Love Island, Dr. Alex is probably one of the most successful contestants in the sense that he's actually doing something that isn't just presenting rubbish TV yeah. after his life. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's a fellow podcaster. We, yeah. should, we should get him on, get him on <laughs> one of the episodes. Um, but he, outside of the villa, it's really interesting because he, you know, he's a doctor, he's educated. Um, and if you were looking at society as a whole, he would rank fairly highly in the hierarchy of like social standing yeah but as soon as that was translated into the villa literally simply because he couldn't or didn't want to get it on with some ladies in the villa you know he was at the bottom of the pile for that instead because the masculinity that was created that environment that's created in the villa only celebrated the doing of the bits right so it's a, it's a complete reversal of mm. his position in society it was really yeah, it's really interesting um one of the other issues as well is this this kind of firstly representing sexuality as heteronormative, mm. so not dealing with any other kind of sexuality types, but also this kind of double standards over the sexuality. Mm. So if you were a female um, showing, you know, um, showing your sexuality really overtly within the house, mm. you're being slut shamed outside yeah. as opposed to this kind of celebration of sex, which was happening with the men. Absolutely. Um, and Mora is a really good example because um, she was really ridiculed within the media. But, you know, if the men are allowed to talk about, oh, I want to rip her clothes off, why can't the women say the same thing without the same reaction? Exactly. And, and you know, she was absolutely ridiculed in the media. Um, whereas these men, not necessarily so much. No, and that that is a great example of you know this this discrepancy between the genders in terms of how they're treated, in terms of sexuality on Love Island. Mm. Right. Well, we've covered quite a lot of the social sciences there. Um, Karen, I'm going to set a scene for you. Okay. In some kind of alternate reality. Yeah. I'm on Love Island. Right. I'm about to walk into the villa. You're giving me my pep talk. Okay. We've got that prize money in mind. Right. So you're whooping on the top of the car and waving your arms around. Yeah, but probably fully dressed. Okay. Um, how do I use science to help me win Love Island? 
Well, I'd say you'd need to know how to flirt effectively. Right. Failing at the first hurdle there. (laughs) Okay. So for a lady to flirt, it's been shown actually um, in research that that it doesn't matter where you are from around the world. So Papua New Guinea, South America, Paris, doesn't matter. All women seem to flirt in the same way, which means it must be some kind of innate ability, Mm. the flirting, how to flirt. Um, So the process would be, first of all, you'd smile. Okay. The person you're attracted to. Flash the pearly whites. I can do this. Absolutely. Um, And then you'd gaze lovingly into his eyes. Mm -hmm. And then you'd lift your eyebrows up. And that would make your eyes appear larger. And of course, if your pupils are dilating, that would immediately give him that that signal that you're interested. Right. Got you. But you don't want to hold his gaze for too long. Two two or three seconds, plenty of time. So Mm -hmm. then you need to, what are you going to do next? Well, then you're going to um, turn your eyes away from him and tilt your head down slightly. Okay. And if you're being particularly flirty, you might look upwards and lift your eyebrows again. <laughs> you're doing it to me I now. I am doing it to you now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then make a quick look again and then look away. And while you're doing that, so what some women will do is cover their face with their hands and maybe have a little bit of a giggle. Oh. Mm. So kind of acting a little bit coy, a little shy. Absolutely, yeah. A little come hither, but... I'm also not throwing myself at you. Absolutely. And and giving that eye flash to say, you know, I'm interested, I'm holding your gaze. Mm. Look how beautiful my eyes are. Aren't you really attracted to me? Of course. <laughs> um, now, if you're a man, it's a little bit different. Okay. So we're talking about the chest. I mean, it helps with women too, but Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for men, what they will tend to do is um, if they're sitting in a chair, they'll lean back in the chair, oh. maybe put their hands behind their head. Oh, thrust, shove that chest Yeah, out. thrust the chest forward, push the elbows backwards. Um, and and then maybe they might stand up and smile and come and approach you, but still thrust their chest at you. Mm. Um, and this is kind of this subconsciously announcing their dominance. Um, and this is seen across the animal kingdom. So if you, you know, within uh, chimps and baboons and other um, organisms like that, will do a similar similar thing okay so a man i fancy is coming over chest first Mm -hmm. i've deployed my copulatory gaze i've held his eyes for uh, a couple of seconds what's next i need to work on my body synchrony and this is something that often happens without you you don't realize you're doing it do you no when you're attracted to someone you mirror their body language yeah to kind of show that you're engaged and you're interested and you're available whereas of course if you're not attracted to someone you edge away you don't stand facing onto them you're not making eye contact you're desperately looking for an exit absolutely and crossing your arms and uh, you know turn as you say turning your gaze away so i feel i can i feel i can win this now excellent but it's not just about winning actually um so some economists got together and they looked at um the good and the bad and the muggy oh well <laughs> Um, and they, they found that appearing as a contestant on Love Island could actually earn you more money over your lifetime than an Oxbridge degree. Oh, my God. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Um, in fact, if you're in the villa for the full duration from start to finish... So you're an original gangster and a finalist. Absolutely. Um, you could earn up to £2.3 million pounds over oh five years. Five years. 2.3 million. And that's through sponsorship deals and, you know, selling your soul. Absolutely. Sure. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of the episode, then, doesn't it? Indeed. How many Love Island lingo did you spot interwoven seamlessly throughout this episode? I suspect not as many as they were. (laughs) Okay, listeners, if you were playing along, you should have spotted what's your type? Mm -hmm. Uh, Crack on. I got graft in there. We got muggy quite a few times. Do bits came in. We got get dumped. We mentioned the fire pit. 
uh, OG, of course, the original gangster, and recoupling. Hmm. That's quite a few. I think so. Not bad at all. Okay, so that's all we've got time for for this episode. So we would love for you to subscribe to our podcast if you enjoyed it and leave us a comment. Absolutely. And don't forget to keep in touch with us as well on social media. So we are on Instagram at smallscreensci-pod. We're on Twitter at smallscreensci. You can email us at smallscreensci at gmail.com. And you can also find us on Facebook at Small Screen Science Podcast. Thank you very much. So we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.